Thank you, Jim. During the elders' meeting this week, we were talking about how long Jim Grinnell had done basic and that he was getting to be rather old to be a youth pastor, and he was actually expressing concern there for a season that he might have his grandkids in in the youth group, thought that would be kind of unique. And then we recalled that I've been doing Bible Bowl. This will be my 23rd year, starting in September, doing Bible Bowl. That's not meant to be an applause line, trust me. But uh, I've always joked that I may be doing Bible Bowl so long that they'll have to wheel me on stage someday. And it's the biggest ball in the whole wide world. It may happen. You never know. I heard a story once about a man who was a chronic grumbler. He'd just gotten a traffic ticket, and he went to pay his fine. And after he paid the fine, of course, grumbling the whole time, the clerk handed him a receipt for his ticket payment, and the man grumbled, what am I supposed to do with this? And the clerk said, well, keep it. When you get four of these, you get a bicycle. I don't know whether or not this man actually deserved this traffic ticket, but I do know that he didn't help his case at all by grumbling to the clerk. Though this man didn't get it, sometimes we do seem to understand, we get the idea that grumbling and complaining is probably not a good idea for our overall well-being. There's the story of a man out west who was driving down a dirt road, and his dog was riding in the back of his pickup truck, And his faithful horse was following in the trailer behind that he was pulling with his truck. His truck slipped on the dirt going around a curve, and he had a terrible accident. Sometime later, a highway patrol officer comes on the scene, and the highway patrol officer was an animal lover, and he saw the horse first, and he realized how seriously the horse was injured and that he wasn't going to make it. So he took out his service revolver, and he put the animal out of its misery. He walked around the accident, and he found the dog, and the dog was hurt critically, too. He couldn't bear to hear this poor dog whining in pain, so he ended the dog's suffering as well. So finally, as he's walking around the scene, he locates the driver, who had also suffered multiple fractures, and he was off in the weeds by the side of the road. And the cop said, hey, are you okay? And the injured man, looking once at that smoking revolver in the trooper's hand, quickly replied, never felt better. Now, the opposite of grumbling might be contentment, but it might also be optimism. There's a story probably made up about a child psychologist who wanted to observe how different children responded to negative circumstances. So they got a room, and they filled it with horse manure, and they put one child in there first, and they watched how he responded. Now, predictably, he whined, and he cried, and he grumbled that he was in this room of smelly manure. Oh, my goodness. A few minutes later, they put another child in there, and this little guy started tearing around the room. He was digging in the manure, and he was so excited, and everybody who was watching was totally confused. Why is he so excited? After a few minutes of watching this, they asked him why he was so excited, and he said, hey, with all this manure in the room, there has to be a pony in here somewhere. Now, I can't confirm this, but I believe that that optimistic little boy was Joel (laughs) Vasanen. Can't you see Joel doing that? Of course, contentment is so much more than just positive thinking or optimism. And for all of us, the opposite of contentment, grumbling, 
is a very unattractive quality. In fact, it repels people. The truth is, we don't like being around grumblers and complainers. Even parents who love their children deeply really get annoyed when the kids start whining, don't they? Even if some of us have the tendency to slip into that attitude ourselves from time to time. Even if some of the whining seems justified, the fact is we just don't want to listen for long. It wears us out. And Scripture recognizes this truth too. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So apparently when the Apostle Paul wrote this to the believers at Philippi, nobody liked grumblers then either. It was an unattractive quality. It actually had the potential Paul said, to hinder the spread of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but that's what he says here. God doesn't like grumbling. Christians don't like grumbling. Neither do unbelievers. Not only does Paul tell the Philippians that they should do all things without grumbling, but he gives very specific reasons for this admonition. So that, he said, you may be blameless and innocent. Why? So that, he said, you may be recognized as children of God in a crooked and twisted generation and so that you can shine as lights in the world, leading the way to a world without grumbling. Now, that last part was, was my addition. Essentially, what Paul is telling the Philippians is that grumbling is so unattractive that it literally repels people. It undermines the message of the good news. And after all, if we grumble about everything, how can the gospel be the good news that it truly is? It begs the question, if it's such good news, why are we grumbling? Paul says that as we shine as lights in the world, we hold fast or hold forth the word of life. Of course, the word of life is the gospel, the good news that Jesus is our Redeemer. And he has offered those who trust in him redemption, eternal life. That's such good news, it means we should have little or nothing to grumble about. And if we do, and if the world sees us as grumblers, it somehow hinders the spread of that good news. Grumbling is something that God has always taken quite seriously. We read about this in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, there's an extended passage talking about the people of Israel immediately following the exodus from Egypt. Paul reminds the Corinthian believers there of important lessons from the chapter of this history of God's people. He reminds them of the idolatry they fell into. He reminds them that these same people who had experienced God's miraculous rescue nevertheless put God to the test. If you want a fuller picture, you can read the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians 10 and then the passage from Exodus that Paul's referring to there in that passage in Corinthians. But for our purposes this morning, I want to mention just a few verses that relate to our theme of grumbling. From 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, 
We must not put Christ to the test, it says, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So Paul tells us clearly that the people's experience after the exodus from Egypt is an example for us, for our instruction, so that we can learn from it. It's kind of, here's the way not to do it, right? Our instruction in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians is that grumbling leads to destruction. Our instruction in Philippians, which we read a few moments ago, is that grumbling destroys our witness to a watching world. So we're beginning to sense a little bit of a theme here, aren't we? Grumbling is not a good thing. With that in mind, it might help us to take a little bit closer look at the experience of Israel right after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. There's a key verse here, and it's in Exodus, verse 8, Exodus 16, verse 8. If any verse sums up the primary reason why grumbling is such a bad thing, this is it. Yes, grumbling is bad because it hinders our testimony about the good news. Yes, grumbling is bad because it can lead to destruction. Those are bad things, right? But we see in Exodus 16 that the people grumbled against Moses. We read that in verse 2 and 3 of Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So here they are, just days after seeing, witnessing these amazing miracles, the Red Sea parting, just days after seeing God miraculously lead them out of Egypt, just days after seeing God lead them through the desert. They're grumbling and they're complaining that God doesn't care enough to save them from hunger. Now, in hindsight, <coughs> excuse me, we may look down on the Israelites. How can they possibly grumble after all they have witnessed, all the miraculous things that they have experienced firsthand? But if we're honest, folks, if we're honest, if we have a little bit of self-awareness, we have to admit that we can sometimes be just like them. We have an attitude toward God of, what have you done for me lately? We forget his blessings. We forget his provision. Gee, that was yesterday. That was last week. That was last month. More importantly than forgetting these things, we forget or overlook his redeeming love. He delivered us, folks. He delivered us from the curse of sin and death. That's always true for those who are in Christ regardless of the other trials in our lives. And still, we grumble about our circumstances. Yet, how does God respond, at least initially, to the grumbling of the people of Israel? You remember? Manna, quail, provision from heaven, heaven, blessing, food. We read about that in the next few verses of Exodus 16 and about the quail a few verses after that. God uses this occasion of their grumbling to show his love and his mercy. So after we see God reveal his plan of provision to Moses, we read this in Exodus chapter 16 still, verses 6 through 8. 
So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? You are grumbling, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. That last verse is a key verse. It's very important for us to understand here this morning. The people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They were, after all, God's chosen leaders, God's instruments in bringing the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. But we see this, and it's as clear as it can be. Moses told the people, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, I don't know about you folks, but this is an incredibly convicting and sobering thought to me. I think about the things in my life that tend to make me grumble. And I realize that my grumbling, my complaint, is never really just about the circumstances. It's never really just about maybe the people who are involved in my reason for grumbling. My grumbling is against the God who saved me from sin and death. My grumbling is against the one who paid the price of my redemption, who sacrificed himself in the flesh so that the punishment that I deserved fell upon Christ, so that I could spend eternity in joy with him. And I'm complaining? At moments like that, when I see my grumbling for what it really is, I feel like Job did. You remember Job? He certainly suffered more and had more reason to grumble and complain about his life than I'll ever have. But he listened to God say to him in a very long passage near the end of the book of Job, essentially saying to Job, I'm God and you're not. Look at what I've done. Look at what I can do. I understand so much more about what's really happening than you'll ever know at least this side of eternity. So God says, trust me. Trust me. I am trustworthy. God basically said, Job, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. And then we read in Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's how I feel when I feel that sense of conviction about grumbling. I feel I need to repent. So we face this reality. We face it in ourselves, and we see it even more manifestly in the world around us, grumbling right? Discontentment. It colors almost every facet of our modern life. Anybody notice that? Man's rebellious default setting is to grumble, complain, argue, and whine about anything and everything he doesn't like. It seems that people are almost fundamentally incapable of being content. 
In fact, if you think about it, we're almost encouraged quite often to be discontent. Virtually every marketing campaign capitalizes on our innate sense of dissatisfaction. Whatever they're selling, it works better, it works faster, it works easier, and it's cheaper than what you have already. So we got to have it. And we're not content with what we have. Isn't that true? I wonder how much advertising would work at all if people grew in contentment. A lot of advertising just wouldn't work or they'd sure have to change their strategy a little bit. In other words, discontentment and grumbling comes very naturally to all of us. That's why it takes supernatural intervention in the form of the Holy Spirit shaping and molding us into the image and likeness of Christ to overcome this natural tendency that we all have to grumble. That's why it's so critical for us to realize the bottom line here. We know that all those complaints ultimately go back to God. As Job learned, everything, everything, everything is ultimately overseen by the sovereign God we serve. So when we complain about our circumstances, we're really complaining that God didn't orchestrate, didn't design things to our taste and satisfaction, and we're somehow implying that we think we know better than him. The same goes for all areas of life. When we are discontent in anything, we're really questioning God's wisdom, will, provision, goodness, and blessing. In short, we're actually dissatisfied with God. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to develop a heart of submitted contentment to his will. One definition of complaining or grumbling is this. It's a negative response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing arising from the self-centered notion that it's undeserved. The truth is that grumbling is expressing ingratitude, ingratitude in the light of the saving grace of God. Jeremiah asked in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 39, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? If that is true of everyone, then how much more does that apply to us who are believers in Christ, who have experienced his forgiveness through the cross? These kinds of reasons should be enough all by themselves to check our disgruntled, grumbling spirits at the door. But Paul actually gives us more in Philippians. Do we care about the world around us? When they see a believer what do we want them to see? What do, they want, what do we want them to see us doing in responding to the trials, the disappointments, the challenges of our lives when we do it the same way they do? Do we do it the same way they do, with grumbling, complaining, outrage? If we develop a reputation as complainers, no amount of tracts we hand out, no amount of fish symbols or bumper stickers on our cars, no amount of Christian t-shirts, nothing we say can make people think we're godly. The presence of a complaining spirit in our day-to-day -day lives is likely a stronger testimony to those around us in a negative way than the actual words we say. So we should stop grumbling, not just because when we do complain, we're complaining against God. Now, that should be reason enough all by itself, right? But we should also stop grumbling for the sake of the crooked and twisted or perverse generation 
among whom we live. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul's quoting a phrase from Deuteronomy 32.5 where Moses condemned unfaithful and rebellious Israel as a crooked and perverse generation. Even though Israel was supposed to be devotedly following God and be separate and distinct from the world around them, even though Israel was supposed to also, just like us as believers in Christ, they were supposed to be a light to the rest of the world, but they weren't. They grumbled, they complained, they rebelled, they were idolaters. And they failed to live up to their covenant with a merciful God. Now think about this. In our declining culture, is it just possible for us as believers in Christ that doing everything without grumbling may be one of the strongest witnessing tools that we have? Think about that. How can we expect to have any spiritual impact on the world If the way we live our lives, the way we grumble about things, just like the rest of the world, doesn't match up with the things we say we believe. If we complain and grumble, just like the world does, how are we any different? How can we expect to attract people to the truth? It's the gospel that gives us the freedom to not succumb to the prevailing spirit of discontentment, and it's our discipline of contentment that lends credibility to the gospel we preach. Now, a little bit of a sidebar here to lend just a little bit more clarity, I think, to what we're saying this morning. First of all, there is contentment. And then there is such a thing as healthy discontentment. For example, I'm not content with my prayer life. Matter of fact, I don't know too many people that are. I'm not content with my lack of patience. Now, there's an ironic statement. Think about it. I'm not content that abortion on demand is the law of the land. I'm not content that false teaching is so prevalent throughout our nation and the world and it leads so many people astray. I'm not content that women and children are bought and sold for the purpose of sexual exploitation, even here in America. But I am content with who I am in Christ. I am content with God's provision. Does that mean that we can never seek to improve ourselves or our station in life? Well, clearly not. The Word of God commends perseverance. The Word commends work, but the Word also commends contentment. So we're not suggesting that everything requires contentment. There are things that are unjust and ungodly that we should not be content to see stay the way that they are. And there are life circumstances that we can seek to improve legitimately without displaying discontentment. Secondly, I want to say that there's also the reality of Scripture's view of lament or complaint. Now, you might think some of this is semantics, but I hope we can see a clear difference here between many of the laments or complaints that we see in Scripture, which don't seem to be condemned, and the kinds of complaints or grumbling that we're talking about this morning. And that impacts how we talk to one another. I don't want this morning's message to make anyone think that none of us can ever talk to our brothers and sisters in Christ about the problems in our lives for fear of being labeled a grumbler. Think about that for a second. I don't want you to go away from here this morning and say, I can't tell Bill anything that's wrong in my life because he's going to think I'm a grumbler. He just preached about it. After all, Galatians 6.2 tells us to bear one another's burdens, right? 
How can we do that? If we're worried, it's going to come out sounding like grumbling when we share our burdens with one another. Now, Jim Grinnell and I were talking this week. I have that opportunity sometimes before a message to talk to one of the brothers, and we were processing this together about this very issue. So, first of all, I do not want to lessen the very impact of the clear biblical admonition to do everything without grumbling or complaining. That's what Scripture says. I don't want to dumb that down in any way. I also don't want to be a source of unnecessary guilt for what I see as a legitimate sharing of problems with each other. Jim remembered when we were talking this week about a book that he had read that made a distinction between burdens and loads in Galatians 6. The verse I just mentioned said, bear one, another bur- bear one another's burdens. And the idea there is something that's too big for one person to carry. It's a burden. But then a few verses later in verse 5, it says, each will have to bear his own load. And you might say, huh? Bear one another's burdens, bear your own load, okay? Well, a load is something we all carry. We all carry loads, and we must learn to bear. A burden is something which no one would expect you to carry alone. A load is like your backpack, okay? There are certainly exceptions, but most of us shouldn't need someone to carry our backpack. A burden is a lot more like a heavy piece of furniture or harder still an appliance like a refrigerator or a truckload of goods. Nobody here can carry those kinds of things alone. So Jim said, grumbling is like whining about your backpack. And then I think about the Psalms. We see a lot of what we could call complaining in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 3, we could cite many more. Beginning with verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. If read alone, without any context at all, that could sound like complaining or grumbling, couldn't it? But then we read in the next verses, But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. So while verses 1 and 2 could sound like grumbling or complaining, verses 3 and 4 transform those complaints into a cry to the Lord and a declaration of trust in Him. So complaining and crying out to God are in different categories. God sees and hears our hearts, and grumbling reveals a heart attitude. God knows the difference. God knows the difference. And I believe that, again, if we have any kind of self-awareness at all, we know the difference too. We know when we slip from from, uh, an honest sharing of problems and needs into grumbling and complaining. There's a difference between a biblical complaint or lament and a complaint or lament that God condemns as grumbling. And, again, we see this especially in the Psalms, which give voice to some very real human emotions. A lamenter wants to, seeks to trust God. The whiner or grumbler doesn't, or at least the whiner or grumbler resists trusting God. He just wants to grumble. The grumbler also doesn't fight back against his own complaining. There's also a reality that with the righteous lament or complaint, there's a stopping point. There's a boundary you will not cross. There's a limit. It's like the phrase venting. You may have had a friend tell you they'd like to vent. 
What's the implicit understanding there? They're going to unload their burden, and then they're going to stop, right? They're not going to go on and on and on. We don't expect venting to be constant, ongoing grumbling. There's an implicit understanding that we can only go on so long, so far with complaining, lamenting, or grumbling before it becomes the kind of grumbling that Scripture condemns. A few years ago, we looked at lament and complaint through the perspective of Psalm 42 in a message called Fighting for Hope. I'm sure all of you remember that sermon, right? Let's finish with some thoughts from that psalm this morning to help us understand better what I believe is the hard attitude that God would desire from us when it comes to our complaints. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's 11 verses, so hang with me here. As a deer plants a pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you within turmoil, in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. Let's notice some key things here in Psalm 42. Quite a few things in this psalm we could call grumbling or complaining. Now, why isn't it the kind of grumbling that Moses and Paul condemned? First of all, the psalmist is not surrendering to his problems. He's not wallowing in them. He doesn't stay there. He's honest about his pain, very honest. These are some honest, emotion-filled words, aren't they? but he doesn't stay there. He's fighting back. And he's not fighting back alone. He's seeking God. He asks God why. He seeks help in his fight. He affirms God's sovereign love for him. He preaches to himself. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. You know what? We need to preach the truth to ourselves sometimes. That's why the scripture memory that we highlighted this morning is so important. That's one way we can preach the truth to ourselves. We can recite Scripture to ourselves. Amen? He remembers past experiences, remembering the good things of God. He thirsts for God, knowing that only God will satisfy. Think about this. His complaints about his circumstances could be fully met, but still, only God will satisfy. There are lessons for us about the difference between grumbling which is always a complaint against God, always a negative witness 
to a watching world versus a righteous lament or complaint which God hears and God understands and responds to with his grace which is sufficient for us regardless of the depth of our complaint. Do everything without grumbling, the scripture tells us. Do everything without grumbling. May it be so among the saints at TCF. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're grateful that your word searches our hearts. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, that you care enough to mold us and shape us into the image and likeness of Christ and not allow us to just rest in and stay put in our grumbling and our complaints, Father God. We're also grateful for the admonition that we are to be lights to a watching world and that grumbling doesn't help that witness in any way. We pray, Heavenly Father, that each one of us here would be molded and shaped more and more into your image in such a way that grumbling and complaining would not be the hallmark of our lives in any way, but that we would be people who rejoice in you. We would be people who, when we have a legitimate complaint, come to you, come to each other, Lord, and share those things, but always preach the truth to ourselves. Why are we so downcast? Put your hope in God. We cling to these things, Father. We cling to the truth of your word. We cling to the truth of the gospel. And we thank you for our redemption, knowing that that makes anything that we would grumble and complain about something that we should never even consider, Lord God. Thank you, Father, for your word. We pray that you'd bring conviction to us. In Jesus' name, amen.